The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. It's a delight to be at UPC. This church is in many ways home for our entire family. I came to Christ as a high school student at Roosevelt through the ministry of this church. Our children were nourished in the Sunday school and the youth group. Uh, my eight years as pastor marked my life in a very positive way. I had the privilege of being involved with the deputation program during those eight years. Later, one of our children was a deputy to Siberia uh, and had an extraordinary time in Siberia. So it's good to be here. It's also good to welcome Eugene and Jan Peterson to be worshiping with us this morning. Uh, many of us, millions of people around the world have benefited from God working through Eugene's writing in his books and obviously through his paraphrase of the scriptures and the message. So it's a privilege to have you worship with us and very intimidating too, by the way. But, uh, but I'll do my best, okay, Eugene? There's a deep river of mercy that flows from the throne of God, from God's heart, a persistent, penetrating, patient river of grace that expresses God's determination that all people, all nations will be blessed, rich and poor, male and female, regardless of ethnicity or culture, All people will be reconciled in Christ. We see that river of mercy reach its height on the cross of Christ, flowing from there through an empty tomb into the nations, carrying with it the people of God all the way to the throne of God in the coming kingdom. But that's to run ahead of our story. What we see in this extraordinary account of Jonah is God's determination to use Israel expressed through Jonah to express that mercy to Nineveh. And we also see Israel in the person of Jonah's reluctance, deep, deep reluctance to participate in it. Ironically, Jonah is the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. There are only two people in all of the Bible who succeeded in being used by God to convert an entire city. Jonah and the Samaritan woman at the well after her encounter with Jesus. But Jonah also is the most outraged at his success. But we'll see that next week. This is a story of the grace of God. It's also a story of how we view one another as insiders and outsiders. Acceptable and unacceptable. Within the scope of God's mercy and outside the purview of those who deserve God's grace. It's a story of repentance and self-righteousness. It's appropriate on Deputation Sunday. The story of the propelling mercy of God sending us into the nations. If you're able, would you stand with me? And we will read together Jonah chapter 3. Page 753, is it? And I invite us to read it in unison together. Let us read together the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. And all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. In the world today, it's the province surrounding the city of Mosul in Iraq. It was called an evil city in scripture. A city full of lies and plunder and bloodshed. Most importantly to Jonah, Nineveh was the city that had recently conquered and taken captive half of the kingdom, all of Israel. And now Judah was threatened by the warlike ravages of Nineveh. The destruction of Nineveh, in other words, would have been good news to any self-respecting Jew. Jonah's hatred for Nineveh wasn't just the generic Gentile distrust or Jewish distrust of Gentiles. These were the people that could wipe his people off the face of the earth. To use our contemporary phrase, most Jews would have regarded Nineveh as the axis of evil. God's judgment upon Nineveh would have been good news for Jonah. What would be our contemporary equivalent? Hutus and Tutsis, if we were in Congo or Burundi or Rwanda, Al-Qaeda, Iran. My suspicion is that we have no right to view ourselves as morally or spiritually superior to Jonah. In fact, we may see ourselves all too clearly in this story. The more important question, however, is will we also see the character of God? For this story points to a central issue. If we're going to explore what it means for us to participate in the outflow, the penetration of the world with the grace of God. No human being is outside the reach of God's grace and God's love. Though they may be estranged from God, no one is a stranger to God. And therefore the question is, what must happen in our own lives so to receive the grace of God and be set free by it 
that we no longer live with our natural human fear of otherness, of differences, of foreigners, of those who are unlike us, those who threaten us, those who may be perceived by us to be placing our lives at risk. There are stunning stories today coming out of the Holy Land. Stories, for example, illustrated by a movement called Parents' Circles. Palestinian Muslim and Christian parents gathering for the first time in history with Israeli Jewish parents. And what has brought them together? What force would propel them to overcome a 25-foot barrier and decades of enmity and hostility and prejudice and fear and hatred? Carrie and I met one of these parents a couple of years ago on a trip to Bethlehem. The mayor of Bethlehem, George, actually by the decree of Palestinian authority, the mayors of over a dozen cities in the West Bank must be Christian because the Muslim Palestinian Authority so deeply respects Christians and wants to see their leadership expressed in their country. One day several years ago, uh, George was driving with his family to go shopping in Bethlehem. Unexpectedly, without warning, they were ambushed by a group of Israeli military, and their car was was riveted with over 200 bullets. His daughter died instantly, and the rest of them were all critically and permanently injured. After months in hospital, they largely recovered physically, but they never recovered in their grief. Now, the norm in the context would be for George to express and to exercise his grief in hatred and in revenge. But George said to us, I can't, I'm a Christian, for I am called to love and to forgive. And so George and his wife joined one of these parent circles and regularly meet with Jewish and Muslim parents, drawn together by what? By one thing. They've all lost children in the conflict. And they have all said, no more. May there be no more children, no more parents who have to go through what we've gone through. And so we return to our earlier story of prejudice and of judgment and of enmity in the Middle East. It took Jonah three days to walk across Nineveh. It would be like walking from Shoreline to Renton to Bellevue to Kirkland a couple of times. It was a great city. Striking parallel that it took him three days in the whale. In fact, I wonder if but walking in that city felt a little bit like the whale's belly to Jonah. Felt like he was being swallowed up by this place of the worst nightmare in his life, Nineveh. It's also a striking parallel of the three days our Lord spent in the tomb. Jonah's message as he walked those streets wasn't a street corner preacher's turn and burn kind of message. It was pure burn. It was a message of doom. All he proclaimed, according to the text, is in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. Jonah could celebrate his own deliverance from the whale in chapter 2, but he had any expectation of God's deliverance of Nineveh. However, Jonah was about to find out that the word overturn can also mean turn around. Just as Moses' staff was overturned, 
turned around from a snake into a staff and a staff into a snake. Just as mourning and sorrow will be overturned, will be turned around into joy. Just as, as recorded in the book of Acts, the followers of Christ overturned, turned around the entire world. Just as we overturn a new leaf, no, we turn around, no, we turn over a new leaf, right? Jonah thought he was preaching a message of pure destruction. Instead, he was preaching a message of salvation. His message contained far more good news than Jonah anticipated. One could almost imagine God chuckling a little bit. Okay, Jonah, you want to see Nineveh overturned? I'll show you what that looks like. I'll turn them upside down. Just as one day the followers of Jesus will turn the whole world upside down. And to his shock, Jonah gave his message and fled as fast as he could. And the city believed and repented. Jonah only uttered one sentence according to scripture. Never even mentioning God. This is good news for us preachers. <laughs> yeah, it's not the power of the preaching that transforms lives, but it's the power of the Spirit in the grace of God, isn't it? Even though God's call to Abraham, God's call to Israel since Abraham, had been through Israel all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Jonah was scandalized by the blessing of God on Nineveh. The king, hearing of the repentance of his people, makes repentance public policy. Though there's no storm on the horizon, no there's, no, though there is no evident danger, just one ambiguous, one-sentence message coming from nowhere, there's no evidence that Jonah ever met the king, he realized his city was in danger. And he, as a leader of that city, must do something about it. So what did he do? Did he send out his builders to strengthen the walls of the city and heighten their defenses? Did he send out his special forces to suss out the enemy and figure out how can we get the enemy before the enemy gets us? No, he called for repentance and fasting. He gets up off his throne, leaves his seat of power, identifies himself with his people, takes off his royal robes, the symbol of his authority, and puts on feed sacks. Humbling himself as king, as ruler, alongside his people. He's now the ruler in repentance, removing all the symbols of royalty and putting on the same abasement as his people. The only king in scripture who ruled in greater humility than the king of Nineveh is the one we encounter later wearing a crown of thorns. Though he once sat on a throne, he now sits in ashes. Job, if you remember, sat in ashes, but that's after he had lost everything. The king of Nineveh sits in ashes based on the rumor that he might lose everything. Realizing that he was the ruler of an evil nation whose hands were filled with bloodshed and violence and unjust gain, he called for the entire nation to repent, to turn from its evil ways 
and from the violence in its hands. And who knows, he says in chapter 9, perhaps God might relent. This act of repentance overturned the entire social order. The kings and the commoners all sat together in ashes. It overturned the entire economic order. Even the animals fasted. Even the animals put on sackcloth. Now that must have been a rather comical sight. It's the only time in scripture that this is recorded. But it expresses the earnestness of the king's commitment for genuine repentance. Repentance not just as adding a generic remorse or a little bit of I'm sorry on top of our life. Repentance not just on saying, well, I believe in God, but not allow, and I will shun idols, but I won't change my life a bit. But repentance, which in scripture really means to turn around. To experience this radical, top to bottom, inside to out, turning around of how I live, that I might live differently. True faith is not simply measured by the words we say, but by the life we live. And in Scripture, true faith is measured by how we deal with money, how we deal with our enemies, how we deal with those that we regard as outsiders. I have been struck over the last year by a poverty in our nation. It's a poverty of repentance. How many I'm sorry's, how many apologies, how many acts of repentance have we heard, have I expressed over our global economic crisis and my own complicity in it? I tried to benefit off of a pension plan invested in the stock market. I was willing to have our nation sell our children's future into debt because we fought a war that I didn't want to pay for and I'd rather have the future pay for it. I have sold my children's future into debt to the environment because I've lived a lifestyle that the environment can't sustain. Where are my acts of repentance, my turning around? How many corporate apologies, how many acts of repentance have we heard in America for our culture of violence, our neglect of our children, our allowing the deterioration of our public schools so that confused, lost, desperate children grab handguns and go into a school and massacre children? In 2006, I was in Banda Aceh in Indonesia at the height of the tsunami, and I was meeting with the head of Sharia law in Aceh province. It's a province that is under Sharia law, the most extreme form of, of Islamic rule. It was the same week as the massacre of the Amish children in Pennsylvania. And initially the newspapers in Aceh, the first day, reported this tragedy in a derisive kind of way. See how decadent America is. But over the next days, the tone of the articles changed as the report of the Amish response to this horror emerged. The report of the grandfather saying, we must not hate, we must forgive, as he washed the body of his slain grandchild. The report of the Amish attendants at the funeral of the murderer Half the people in attendance being Amish, there to show their solidarity, their grief on behalf of his wife and children. The report of the fact that one of the largest contributors to the aid fund for the wife and children 
of the murderer were Amish giving money. And I was meeting that day with the head of Sharia, and he said, Tim, do the Amish respond this way because they're Christian or because of their culture? And I said, well, it's because of the biblical faith and the call of the gospel, but it's also because of their culture. For when the Amish children hear the story of Jonah, they don't hear this rather fantastical story of a whale or this extravagant expression of God's forgiveness. What they particularly zero in on is this radical call of God for us to love our enemies. And so for centuries, Amish children have been nurtured so that their visceral response to a tragedy. The 13-year-old woman who was the, or girl who was the oldest girl in the classroom, when the gunman put, took them all hostage and laid them all on the floor, turned to him without a moment's hesitation and said, if you're going to kill anybody, please only kill me and let my friends go free. A culture that had been rooted in the, the rejection of violence and this radical grace of God that loves even enemies. The mercy of God. Perhaps, the king said, the Lord will relent and will receive mercy. Mercy in Hebrew shares the same root as the word for womb, a mother's uterus. And it's a beautiful picture because what is a womb? It's a safe place where life can flourish. A place of sacrifice and nurture. A place where a mother sets aside her own rights and her own comforts and her own freedoms that another's life might flourish. And so we are called to be these people of mercy. These people who go into the world and create safe places where others' life might flourish. One of my heroes is a World Vision staff member in Rwanda. During the geno- there, are, there are hundreds of extraordinary stories coming out of the genocide. I've worked hard at trying to understand this because it is a stunning period of history. Everybody who killed each other were nominally Christian. And what went wrong in their discipleship and their faith? That the, the blood of class and ethnicity would run deeper than the blood of Christ, that the waters of fear, the cold, cold waters of fear, would be more determinative than the deep, deep waters of our baptism. What went wrong? Dorothy had the mob come to her house during the genocide, drag her son out of her house, and hack him to death in her front yard. She never could get the face of that murderer out of her mind, and for a decade prayed for him every night. And a few years ago, furtively, one night, there was a knock on her door, and who should be standing there but that man? And he said to her, I killed many people during those horrible hundred days, but I've never been able to forget your son. I can't live with myself anymore. I've come to you that justice might be done. Take me to the police that I can receive what I deserve. And Dorothy opened her door a little more widely and pulled this man in and said, Yes, justice will be done. You took away from me my son. You will now be to me as a son. Mercy. Mercy. While we were yet enemies, 
Christ died for us, that we might be reconciled to God. Ezekiel says of God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked might turn from their way and live. The story of Jonah is in the Bible to show us that repentance can change the course of history. Jesus uses this story to rebuke Israel. Non-Jewish cities, if they saw the deeds that you have seen, he says, would repent like Nineveh. The repentance of Nineveh, he says, puts to shame your own unrepentant hearts. And so he calls himself the sign of Jonah. The prophets had repeatedly warned Israel that if they didn't change their way of life, destruction would come. It's the irony that Nineveh heeded the message that Israel wouldn't heed. And a century and a half later, Nineveh went on to destroy Judah and take it hostage. The story of Jonah is in the Bible to remind us of the depth of God's mercy. God's love for outsiders. God's determination. God's persistent, relentless, unstoppable river of mercy that will penetrate wherever hearts are too hard, coldness is too callous, that lives might flourish. This is a church that for a century has been a church through which this river of mercy has flown. It's flowed into every hospital and every school and every factory and every office building. It's flowed into every neighborhood of this great city. It's flowed out of this city, around the world, persistently, determinately, relentlessly, that the mercy of God might be known. And the question for us today is, does God want to do more? Does God want to do more in me? Does God want to do more in us? In, is there a neighbor? Is there a co-worker? Is there a relative? Is there someone who in my life I view as unlovable outside the scope of mercy and forgiveness? Is there a refocusing of my time or my foreign policy that God might call me to? Does God want to do more? Are there points of resistance in me to this flow of God's mercy? Maybe God is calling us as a church to join the movement in the city to eliminate involuntary homelessness in our city. So that a decade from now, this richest of all cities in the world would not be known as a city with 7,000 people who are involuntarily homeless. Maybe God is calling us to join the movement that are saying, we should have the best public schools in the world not those that are underfunded and under-resourced because we're not willing to pay the taxes to make that possible. Maybe God is calling us to be the city that says, like we have tried to say over and over and over again, UPC was involved in the starting of New Horizons decades ago, this ministry to street prostitutes in our city. Maybe we will be the city that a decade from now will see the end of the trafficking of women in our city and the end of teenage prostitution in our city. Maybe those are expressions, corporately, of the mercy of God. For the truth is, the mercy of God is on the move. Relentless. Unstoppable. And are we moving with it? This is a history-shaping moment. For me, 
Will I let the water of my birth be more determinative than the water of my baptism? Will I let the blood of my class, my culture, my ethnicity determine my social relations and my politics and my economics and my way of life more fully than the blood of Christ shed that we might be one? Will we let our temporary citizenship in this particular country trump our eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God? Jonah tried to row against the river of God's mercy. And he didn't get very far. It took a whale, but God was determined to move him downstream. The strong currents of God's mercy are flowing. They're drawing people toward Golgotha, into an empty tomb, out to the nations, and on this irrepressible journey towards the banquet feast of the Lamb of God, in which all people will be invited to gather and feast on God's mercy. We're called and we're indeed compelled to join in this and let it carry us to places we would never dream of going, to people we would never dream of embracing, that we might discover there together the glory of God. One day, the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We have the calling now to allow God to so work through us as we participate in the flow of God's grace that we bring to the world signs of that future today. May God grant us grace. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.